Now, children, as we, um, as we emphasize the birth of Jesus in this season, I like to say to children every year, I try to remember, that uh, some of you are growing up and last year wouldn't have caught it, and so there's this word incarnation that we use a great deal when we talk about the birth of Christ. And let me say it has nothing to do with reincarnation, nothing whatsoever. That's a, an unbiblical pagan concept. But incarnate means to enflesh. Incarnation is enfleshment. In other words, to take on human nature. So when your mom makes chili con carne, it's chili with meat, all right? So when we use that term incarnation, that's what we mean. You'll hear it a lot during this season of the year. Now let's turn to the book of Isaiah, this very familiar, wonderful section of Scripture, the ninth chapter of Isaiah. Even though our focus will be upon the titles of the Lord in verse 6, we're going to read beginning at verse 1 through verse 7. Will you bow with me in prayer? Our Father, we ask in Jesus' name that you will hear us that in this season of the year, indeed, and always, we would have a sense of wonder at what you have done for us through Christ our Lord. As beautiful a story as it is, it's not just a story. It's history. It really happened. You really entered into time and space to save us from our sins, and we are amazed. May this truth that we celebrate together at this time of the year be used of you, Lord, and our own congregation to deepen our faith and to bring those who do not know Christ to the Savior. And we pray that you would use it throughout the world, that those who are estranged from Christ might come to know him in countries in which there is Hinduism and Islam and Buddhism in countries in which secularism has taken hold and no one thinks of you at all, Lord. We pray, Father, that you would use this truth to awaken, to awaken, sending your spirit to regenerate and the word of God to convert. Will you hear us, Father, and answer our prayer? For we ask it for the glory of your Son and in his name. Amen. Isaiah chapter 9, this very joyful passage This 8th century B.C. prophet, Isaiah, chapter 9, beginning with verse 1. This is the word of God. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish in the former time. He brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations." The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness on them as light shined. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, You have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, 
and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. Look again at verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Every generation of believers thinks that it lives in the darkest time in history. In this passage, the darkness is in no way denied. But the passage makes plain that the darkness is not the ultimate reality. The prophet does what we all should do in dark times. First, he looks back. He remembers God's character and what God has done to deliver his people in the past. And then he looks to the future, trusting that same God and hope to deliver his people in the future yet to come. In verse 4, he remembers how God obtained victory in the days of Gideon. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. A victory for which Gideon could take no credit. And then he looks forward to the greater victory to come through Jesus Christ, a greater than Gideon yet to come. Brightness is coming, even the Gentiles will participate in the joy of it. In verse 2 he says, The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shined. That's us. Gloom is not the ultimate reality. Christ comes, the light shines, the prophet proclaims joy that comes through peace. Christ establishes peace through the blood of his cross. And so we ask of the prophet, who is this? And the prophet begins with a very special birth announcement in the first part of verse 6. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. A child is born, a son is given. A child is born. Mary carried this child. She had contractions. She gave birth. A child was born into the world, a real human being. But a son, notice it says, not born, but a son is given. A distinction between our understanding of these two things. For here we have his humanity, a child born, and the Son of God who was given of the Father for our salvation. In Luke 1.35 we read, Therefore the holy thing which shall be born to you shall be called the Son of God. And from Isaiah 7 and Isaiah 9, we know that his human birth of a virgin, that he is God and that he is man. Oh, this child of Isaiah 9 must be the wonderful child. Indeed, verse 6 tells us that of this child who would be born and this son given The government shall be upon his shoulder. What does that mean? It means that he will establish his kingdom in righteousness. And that kingdom, 
that would come in and through his birth, his obedience to the law, his death on the cross, his resurrection, his ascension. He is the one who rules. He is the one who reigns. So now we turn to the child's four titles, and that's the second thing we see, the four exalted titles of the child born and the son given. And the first title is this, Wonderful Counselor. Wonderful Counselor. Now this word wonderful is an expression of deity. In Isaiah, this very book, chapter 28, the last verse, verse 29, Isaiah 28, 29, the Lord of hosts says this, this also comes from the Lord of hosts, he is wonderful in counsel and excellent in wisdom. Jehovah applies this title to himself. Harmon, in his commentary, rightly says it comes from a root that is almost exclusively used of things that only God can do. Basically, wonderful means the miraculous. John Owen the Puritan said that the mighty God should be a child born and the everlasting Father, a son given to us, may well entitle him to the name Wonderful. And indeed, old John Owen is right. He had every reason to despise the virgin's womb. He had every reason, this holy Son of God, not to come into this world and not to die for us sinners. He owed us nothing, but in sovereign grace and mercy and love, he condescended. A child was born, a son was given, and this indeed is wonderful, is it not? Isn't he wonderful in his love? Miraculous in his grace? Wonderful in his mercy? Isn't this truth of the incarnation of our Lord the most wonderful truth, the most wonderful of realities? And so he is wonderful counselor. Wonderful should be read with counselor. You see, the others are paired up. Mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Wonderful and counselor also fits the scheme of pairing up these titles. If he is wonderful, and that signifies what only God can do, if he is wonderful in counsel, then it speaks of counsel that only God can give. No man could show sinners the way of life. No man could show us the way of acceptance with God. Uh, No man could show us how to live the Christian life. No man could show us what it means that we will be glorified on the last day. Only the wonderful counselor could do this great and awesome thing. David's court had Ahithophel. Solomon's wisdom was supernatural. But this son's wisdom is divine. You remember that great 40th chapter of the book of Isaiah, in which God speaks of his divine attributes, his creative power. Do you remember what he says in verse 13? Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice? And taught him knowledge? And showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like find dust. This is the God who speaks of his own infinite, eternal, 
unchangeable wisdom. He is eternally wise. Because this child born, this son given, is the second person of the Trinity, privy to the eternal counsels of the Holy Trinity. When the Father spoke of his everlasting love for you, his people, the Son was there. When the Father spoke and said to the Son, they will be fallen in sin, they must be redeemed. The Son was there to say, I will go, Father, to redeem them. He was there when the Holy Spirit complied with the Father and the Son in the perfect unanimity of their one essence. He is the second person of the Trinity, privy to the counsels of the triune God. Now the world was ruined by bad counsel, and many a life continues to be ruined by bad counsel. But this wonderful counselor, the second person of the adorable three-in-one, has given to us his written word and his Holy Spirit to illumine our understanding and the promise of wisdom in answer to our prayers. In the context of his church, the Word of God proclaimed our creeds, our confession, our worship, the support of one another. This counselor continues to give his counsel to us, his people. This wonderful counselor continues to speak to us his truth. You know, this word counselor means exactly what it says. He is the counselor of his people. Why ever... Would a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ desiring to follow him, why ever would a believer go to a secular counselor to live to learn how to live? Why ever would a believer turn to someone who doesn't know who God is, who doesn't know who man is, who doesn't know man's need, who doesn't know anything about redemption? Why ever would a believer turn to an unbiblical, secular counselor for counsel when God, the wonderful counselor, has come, born of a virgin, has died for our sins, has granted us through his resurrection power, his Holy Spirit, and has given to us his word for our counsel? Do you not remember what Psalm 1 teaches? Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly. He is the wonderful counselor of his people, and we need to hearken to his counsel. Where do we find that counsel? My friends, we find it right here in his word. Don't turn to secular people to tell you how to live life, to tell you about ethics, to teach you doctrine. You turn to this word. And there you find the wonderful counselor speaking to us today. Hearken to his counsel and live. So, he's the wonderful counselor. That means then that our Savior, born of a virgin, is wisdom itself. He has all wisdom. He is all wise, eternally wise, the wonderful counselor of his people. But does he have power? Many a person can speak wise counsel but has no power to effect it, no power to bring it about. Does this wonderful counselor have power? Oh yes, look at the next title. Wonderful counselor, the mighty God. The mighty God. Now remember, this is being spoken of the one who was born, the child born, the son given. He is the mighty God. 
Now I ask you, how does Jehovah describe himself in the very next chapter? Had some Jehovah's Witnesses at my house. Looked at this passage, they said, oh well, this doesn't refer to Jehovah. I said, well, let's look at the next chapter. Let's uh, just turn over to chapter 10, verses 20 and 21. And that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord, that's Jehovah, the Holy One of Israel. In truth, a remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the, what does it say? Mighty God. What's the title in Isaiah 9? The Mighty God. (laughs) Isn't that grand? (laughs) Who is Jesus? He is Jehovah. He is the second person of the Trinity. Unless He is man, He cannot be our mediator. Unless He is God, He cannot save us. This is the profound mystery confronting us at Christmas. Very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father. Never created, but the Creator. He assumed human nature. Now, children, please understand. The Christian faith actually teaches, the Bible actually teaches, that that baby born of Mary in Bethlehem of Judea was the mighty God who assumed human nature. Oh, the folly of those who deny the deity of Christ. Well, so long as you're sincere, what does it matter? Someone says, doesn't matter. Heaven or hell depends upon it. Here's the difference between thin ice that cannot hold your weight and thick ice that can carry you all the way through. He is God who assumed human nature. Only His divine nature could give to His finite sufferings infinite value to remove our infinite sin. Let others have a Jesus who is sitting in heaven, wringing His hands, not able to save anyone unless they save themselves. That's not my Jesus. It's not the Jesus of the Bible. My Jesus is the mighty God who came and redeemed sinners through His shed blood, and through His Holy Spirit draws them efficaciously unto Himself. And oh, this mighty God, this mighty God, this mighty transcendent God has not kept at a distance from us His people. For you see that next He is called the Everlasting Father. Wonderful Counselor, the mighty God, He is now called the Everlasting Father. Now, Father is not a failure to distinguish the Father and the Son. It is a reference to the Son's loving character, to His firm and tender love, like a father's love for his children. As one of the old Princeton professors put it, one who enduringly acts as a father to his people. And he does that as the revealer of his Father's love to us, his people. It's a way of saying he loves you as a father loves his child. He cares for you. He loves you. He keeps you. He sustains you. He never forsakes you. And this he is eternally to you. Everlasting father. This he is eternally. Eternity. Who can comprehend eternity? Eternity as an attribute can only be ascribed to God. I remember Spurgeon somewhere saying, here's an old man sitting under a great oak tree, and there he speaks of ancient times. 
But what is that man in his age compared to the tree that hangs over him? That tree has been there twice, three times, four times, as long as the man has lived. But then what is the age of the tree compared to the age of the rocks that surround it? And what are those rocks in age compared to the angels that were there when they were created? And what is the age of an angel compared to the God who never had beginning and will never have ending? (laughs) The everlasting Father. We meet at every point with change in life. Yesterday I was a young man, today I'm an older man. I will soon be an old man, maybe a senile man. Change at every point in life, but God doesn't change. Your Savior is everlasting Father. Now, let's deepen it, shall we? The Westminster Confession of Faith, to which all of the officers of this church subscribe, listen very carefully. Two paragraphs from chapter 2 of the Confession of Faith. There is but one only living and true God, who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will, for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundant in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression, and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him, and with all most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty. God hath all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself, and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he hath made, not deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is the alone fountain of all being, of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and hath most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, and upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest, his knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsels and all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature whatsoever worship, service, or obedience he is pleased to require of them. You say, Pastor, those are heady, heady words. That's the point. All of these divine attributes summarized in the confession that come from Scripture, all of these attributes of God, every one of them, belongs to Jesus Christ, the Savior, who is the child born and the Son given. This everlasting God, everlasting Father. You say, it's past my ability to comprehend. Yes, that's the point. And when we unpack the divine equation, what can follow but awe? Because the infinite became finite. The eternal, subject to time. 
The unchangeable became changeable. The divine became human. God became man. But that's not the half of it. The infinite became finite without ceasing to be infinite. The eternal became subject to time without ceasing to be eternal. The unchangeable became changeable without ceasing to be immutable. The divine became human without ceasing to be divine. God became man without ceasing to be God. So that when the incarnation took place, when Christ came into this world, he really came. But there was no vacancy in the Trinity. He remained the eternal Son of God. <laughs> His eternal divine nature assumed human nature but was not transposed or transmitted into the human. It's beyond us. Simply beyond us. Two natures, God and man, one perfect, one person. Two natures, God and man, in perfect union. Two natures, God and man inconfusedly, unchangeably, indivisibly, inseparably, as the church fathers said. Two natures, God and man, one person. Children, whether you understand or not, get it down. That's the biblical and orthodox formula. Two natures, one person. Two natures, one person. And because God became man, because he assumed human nature, he can save us. As old Athanasius said, what he does not assume, he cannot save. He assumed humanity to save humanity. Because of this, his atonement on the cross is always valuable. Because of this, his sacrifice is always efficacious. Because of this, his intercession is always prevailing for his people. (laughs) How fitting then that the final title is Zar Shalom, the Prince of Peace. You see it here in your text? For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. A probable allusion to Solomon with his extensive and peaceful kingdom in order to show that a greater than Solomon would come to redeem and save and give greater peace. This prince sits on David's throne. Look at verse 7. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David over his kingdom to establish and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth and forevermore the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. And from the Old Testament perspective, David's throne is coordinate with God's throne. 
First Chronicles 29:23. Then Solomon sat on the throne of the Lord as king in place of David his father. So when you hear the news, and there's a lot in the news lately, isn't there? You cut on the radio on your way to work. You listen to the news. Will you please remember that it's not the news? It's selected, emphasized, and arranged portions of the news. The news is beyond our hearing except through the promise of Holy Scripture that we have a king who sits upon David's throne, who rules and reigns over this world and over all of the affairs of men and over your life and over mine. That's the news that should determine how we hear the news. The Prince of Peace sits on the throne. Despite all the folly of man, he rules. And how did that reign of peace come? By his human birth, by the virgin, the God-man established a kingdom of peace. But how? Well, let's stay in this book of Isaiah. Let's turn to the 53rd chapter. That great 53rd of Isaiah tells us how he established peace. Verses 3 through 6. Oh, read these words. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. How does this Prince of Peace establish peace? The chastisement that brought us peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we are healed. He so delighted in peace that he determined to come and remove sin and guilt that had destroyed our peace with God. Christ's blood provides our cover in the storm, the place of peace and safety from justly deserved wrath. So that you can die in the faith of that reality. The atonement finished, the ransom achieved, the sacrifice accepted, peace with God. Every time I think of this text, I think of an illustration that was told originally, as far as I know, by Harry Ironside. Retold, I think, by James Montgomery Boyce and by others. I think this one comes from Boyce. A young man who was a soldier in the Russian army, his father was a friend of Tsar Nicholas I. So the young man had been given a rather responsible post. He was a paymaster. He had to see that uh, the right amount of money was distributed to the soldiers every month. But this young man took to gambling, and eventually he gambled away 
a great deal of the government's money as well as his own. Well, the illustration goes on to say, in due course, the young man received notice that a representative of the czar was coming to check the accounts, and he knew he was in trouble. That evening, he got out the books and totaled up the funds, and then he went to the safe and got out his own pitifully small amount of money. As he sat there and looked at the two, he was overwhelmed at the astronomical debt versus his own small change. He was ruined. He knew he would be disgraced. At last, the young man determined to take his own life. He pulled out his revolver, placed it on the table before him, and wrote a summation of his misdeeds. At the bottom of the ledger, where he had totaled up his illegal borrowings, he wrote, A great debt. Who can pay? He decided that at the stroke of midnight he would die. As the evening wore on, the young soldier grew drowsy and eventually fell asleep. That night, Tsar Nicholas I, as was sometimes his custom, was making the rounds of this particular barracks. Seeing a light, he stopped, looked in, and saw the young man asleep. He recognized him immediately and looked over his shoulder, saw the ledger book, and realized all that had taken place. He was about to awaken him and put him under arrest when his eye fastened on the young man's message, a great debt, who can pay? Suddenly, with a surge of magnanimity, he reached over, wrote one word at the bottom of the ledger, and slipped out. That one word? Nicholas. So the Prince of Peace saw your note. Great debt. Who can pay? And he shed his blood. And he dipped his pen in his own red blood. And he writes at the bottom of the IOU, Jesus Christ. He's the Prince of Peace. Old Thomas Watson, the Puritan. He was born of a virgin that we might be born of God. He took our flesh that he might give us his spirit. He lay in the manger that we might lie in paradise. He came down from heaven that he might bring us to heaven. And what was all this but love? If our hearts be not rocks, this love of Christ should affect us. People of God, at Christmas, behold, love that surpasses all knowledge. And God's people said, Amen. Amen.